the banks of a stream, a hermit whose prayers chose applause for their theme. He gazed at the flowers and he smiled at the sun. Then he clapped with delight. Lord, he cried, Oh, well done. Well done, Lord, oh, very well done. The mountains have laughed with the gypsy clouds. The fields smile to welcome the sun. All nature sings praises aloud. The fields smile to welcome the sun. All nature sings praises aloud. The tree stands to show their elation. A day on God's earth has begun. And every true heart in creation, in speechless wonder, Good morning. I'd like to welcome all of you to Sunday service on this glorious Sunday. My name is Nayaswami Bharat, and this is Nayaswami Anandi. And we'd especially like to greet uh, all our guests at the Expanding Light, and also everyone on the internet. I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. And our reading for this week is, How High Should We Aspire? And Anandi will tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Also, Swami does too, of course. Here, um. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. 
The passage this week is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5. I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The easiest explanation for these words is that they were spoken in criticism of the scribes and Pharisees, particularly since Jesus was often verbally attacked by them and stood up to them fearlessly. However, it wouldn't be much of a challenge to his disciples who aspired to spiritual perfection to tell them, don't be like those who lack any such aspiration. Jesus, in fact, says only a few verses later, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. What Jesus was referring to here, then, was the self-righteousness of the priests. Don't seek perfection, he was saying to his disciples, in the image you project towards others. Don't be satisfied with a goodness born merely of ego definitions. The highest virtue is to transcend the very thought of personal virtue in the realization of God alone as the doer. Before this realization, even the thought, I am kind or I am truthful, is self-limiting. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the seventh chapter, Yet hard the wise Mahatman is to find that man who saith, All is Vasudev. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om. 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 start by reading from Whispers from Eternity. This is a book of poems and prayers by Paramahansa Yogananda. This is the prayer before practicing concentration for our How to Meditate weekend here. Teach me, O Spirit, by meditation to stop the storm of breath, the skipping of my mental restlessness, and all the sensory disturbances that rage on the lake of my mind. Let the magic wand of my intuition halt the gale of passions and unnecessary desires. In the rippleless lake of my mind, then, let me behold the undistorted reflection of the moon of my soul, glistening ever with the reflected light of thy presence. Well, as Bharat said, our topic is how high should we aspire? We should aspire to be who we truly are. Perfect expressions of God's love and joy, the very essence of our being. I thought I'd start this morning with a little personal story. It's one of those stories that is a lot more entertaining after the fact. (laughs) (laughs) If you know what I mean. Um, 
1995, uh, Bharat and I moved back to the village for the meditation retreat, and we changed houses and jobs with another minister couple. And so we moved into a house that had just been built. Had, he'd only lived in it for um, through the summer, and so it had been finished late spring, and then it had sat over the summer, and we moved into it at the very end of the summer. And so it was the first house he'd ever built, and it was a very beautiful house, amazing house, really. Um, but there were a few things he didn't really know very well. And so one of these things was the house was set on a hillside, and because of the construction, all the hill above the house was mud. It hadn't grown over with grass yet because it was still summertime. And there was a pathway that led down the hill and came around to the porch, which was on the same level as the path, and then led into the house, which was the same level as the porch. So it was very convenient, no steps at all. Well, uh, the very first rain of the season that year was a very, very heavy rain. And those of us who live in clay soil know that clay soil does not, when it's, when it's become heavy clay, it does not absorb water. So, a very heavy rain, first rain, runs right down the hill toward the house. And one of the things that this new owner-builder did not know about was drainage. And so, so, as this house, as this water came around the path, he then had two sides of the porch were walled in. So this water came all the way in to that porch and filled it up. Okay, so um, then a little bit of water began to seep under the door. And Bharat was working in his... Along the door, too. <laughs> okay, anyway, began to seep, <laughs> seep under the door. And Bharat was working in his office. And as he was sitting at his desk, he noticed this little trickle of water coming in the door of his office. And so... In a very sleuthful fashion, he thought, I'll follow this trail and see where it's coming from. So he followed it all the way down the hall and to the door. And just like a, 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 you know, a detective on the sort of ready to pounce on the source of this, he opened the door wide <laughs> and two feet of muddy water from the porch just poured into the living room, which luckily didn't have a carpet on it. So... Anyway, now that's a story, and you're probably wondering how in the heck would this possibly relate to today's service, but it does. And so I'm going to tell you another story that will explain it. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, here at the Expanding Light, one of our guests asked me a difficult question. She'd been here studying for a while, and she knows how we pray to the masters on the altar and seen our devotion and all that sort of stuff, and she said... How can we know that those people on the altar, that there isn't some little mistake in their past, that there isn't some little flaw that they have, and after all, they're human? How, how do we, you know, you revere these people so much, how, how do we know that they're perfect? And um, I gave her the best answer I could, but I was thinking afterwards that no one can answer that question for her. Um, my answer might be like, okay, okay, that's fine. But it wouldn't change her consciousness. The only thing that would change her consciousness is if she felt a little ripple, 
a little rivulet of happiness or joy inside herself that she felt was coming through what she was learning here. And if she decided to trace that rivulet, you see we're coming to the, how it ties together, trace that rivulet back to the source and open the door, <laughs> she would be flooded with the presence of joy and love, which is herself. And, and that is the only way her questions could go away. But as I was getting ready for this service today, I was thinking that that was a difficult question she asked, but there's a much, much more challenging question that we can ask. We could ask the question, what if these masters are perfect? What if, through the course of many lifetimes of selfless service, of meditation, of devotion and attunement, What if they have merged their consciousness with God? They've become completely free. They're one with God. And they are in perfect bliss and joy, free from all karma that tells them to return to this world. And what if God says to them, out of God's infinite love and compassion, there are people on that world that you just came from who are confused, and who are suffering. Would you be willing to go back and put on heavy physical body again and serve those people and show them how they might find us? And what if those people, out of love that is almost, that is unimaginable, said, yes, I'll do that? Now, that actually happens to be what most of us in this room believe, and it is a much, much more challenging um, statement than the other question because now it says there is so much love and compassion and caring for us that is happening from God, from the great masters. And how are we going to open to that? How are we going to believe it? How are we going to release ourselves from self-doubt from fear, from anything that blocks this perfect flow of love coming from us. That is our challenge in this lifetime. And luckily, in addition to giving us all this love, they're also telling us how to go about doing it. But it's not an easy thing to do. I wanted to share a story that um, Swami Kriyananda gave us, a little book he gave us, several years ago for Christmas. And it was a story that he wrote when he was 18 years old. And the story is called The Land of Golden Sunshine. And what he said about that book was that the mood of this book captures the mood of my life more perfectly than any other book I've ever written, including my autobiography. And in this story, and it's quite... The, the, the comparison to his life and the life of the person in the story is, is radical, radically different. But there's an underlying mood that I'll talk about. In this story, there's a young girl. Her name is Lisa. And she lives in a very, very depressing and dreary town. It's, it, in the wintertime, there are these just fierce storms that beat down on the town. And no one in the town has any sense of hope. Uh, she works in a button factory, sewing buttons on men's shirts with a lot of other women. That's all they do. They work all week. They have Sundays off. Just And all they 
have to do is sleep on Sunday. They're just that's their only respite from this very uh, routine, unjoyful life. But Lisa wishes and hopes and longs for something more. She feels like there has to be more to life than this. And as she goes to sleep thinking this on a Saturday night, she wakes up Sunday morning and the sunlight's already coming in through her window. And in this sunlight, there appears a form of a man made of sun, made of light. And this form is exuding so much love and joy that she immediately falls to the floor and just kneels in front of it, pronouncing in front of it. And she feels herself caught in this love and joy and it feels very deeply familiar to her. As strange as it is not in her life, it's very deeply familiar to her. But as this light from this man comes around to her, she's just shocked. It's just as it hits her in the face, she's so shocked that she just closes her eyes and sort of protects herself from the light. And when she opens her eyes, the man is gone. And she's, on the one hand, really upset because she doesn't want him to leave. But on the other hand, she's so thrilled by discovering that there is a world of love and joy. And so she hopes that next Sunday he will come again. And sure enough, next Sunday, that same beam of light comes in and she can feel the love and joy in the air already. And she jumps out of bed and kneels and he appears. And he tells her that he comes from a land of golden sunshine. And that in this land, people share love and joy freely that it's very beautiful, it's very uplifting, it's, it, it's a joyous place to be. And as, she, as he talks about it, it feels so familiar to her and she longs to be there. But as the light comes around toward her, she feels that his light is bathing her and she feels unworthy. She feels unworthy to be in the same light as this being, this perfect being. And she shuts her eyes again. And as she opens her eyes and he's vanishing, he's looking at her sadly and shaking his head. And she just goes, oh no, I hope I didn't ruin this. I hope I still have another chance. And, and so she's during that week, she's thinking, could I go to that place of light? But it's so unfamiliar to me. I mean, I'm so... I have a job and people are counting on me to sew these buttons and what will happen if I'm not there? And, and so the week comes around and Sunday comes and once again he appears and she's on her knees again and she's feeling this love and joy. And he looks at her and he said, will you come with me? He said, so many people I've invited and they have not been able to handle it. Their hearts are too weak and too fearful, and they can't take that much love. And she looks inside of herself and she goes, hmm, it's not that I'm so needed here in this village, but rather that I'm so used to that state. And I'm, I, I want instead to have the courage to say yes. And so she, she does that and she says, I offer you my life I come with you, I embrace everything that you have to give. And she, and it says, then the sunlight swept around through the, through the empty room as her soul 
lifted to this higher level of consciousness. And of course, it's just a beautiful metaphor for life. And when Swami says it's the mood of his life, the reason is he said all his life he felt that his real home was heaven and that this material world was just uncomfortable for him. Um, But he said, when he gave this uh, Christmas present out, he wrote a little card by it. And he said, you know, that's what I said when I wrote this. But he said, as I get older, I feel more and more that all I want to do is be where God wants me to be. And when I'm where God wants me to be, it's all the same. It's all just as heavenly as it can be because that's where I'm meant to be and God is there. So it's a huge undertaking. And I wanted to talk about a few ways that we could move ourselves on this. Many of us have been working on this for a long time. It's not an easy journey. But I just wanted to share three, three main things that we can think about. The first is to release our sense of self-definitions. Um, th- just that's exactly what Swami said in the reading. You know, just let go. The Pharisees had the self-definition of being self-righteous. For Ananda people, rarely do we encounter self-righteousness. Instead, we encounter self-criticism, self-honesty to the point of self-deprecation, all these kinds of things. And I was thinking of the image of a, of a hose with a valve. And when the hose is wide open, all this water can flow through it. But when you turn the valve to the left, which would be toward self-righteousness, and you say, I'm proud, I'm good at this. This is I'm something I'm really good at, and um, I feel totally competent to handle this and I did a great job and handled that well. As we get into that kind of pride, we close off that that stream of water, which is God's perfect love and power and joy. And if we turn the valve the other way, which is I don't think I did a very good job of that, and I'm, I don't know how I can ever find God. I mean, this is ridiculous. I can barely meditate. How am I ever going to do this? We turn it that way, we also close off the flow. And if we can leave the valve straight and let that flow flow through us and say, you know, I'm really not here. <laughs> I'm not even an issue here. It's just, I'm just a channel for this presence and love of God, that's what will change us. Um, I had an interesting experience. I'm going to share it. Uh, this happened in uh, 2006 uh, with Swami in India. Um, I, had, I had been editing a book, and when I was done, um, it, I, I knew it wasn't quite done, but I, I could also knew I couldn't do anything else to it. And I sent it to him, and he said, even though he was on vacation, he said, you know, I'm going to have to work on this. So he worked hard on the book, and I saw it after he finished editing it. And it was really thrilling to see. I I love reading. I I love editing. And so I was 90% thrilled by what he had done and how he changed things. And 10%, I was embarrassed because there were also a number of mistakes that anyone should have caught. Anyone with eyes, anybody that had studied English in high school, it was just mistakes. They were just mistakes. Words left out, 
comma that wasn't in the right place, words reversed. And he had to, you know, he had to change that also. Those were my mistakes. Um, and so shortly after that, Bharat and I went to India, and uh, we were at a function with Swami, and Swami came right over to me, and I think he was trying to make me feel better about the fact that he'd taken my work and <laughs> done all this to it. And he came right over to me and he said, you know, you, you couldn't have done what I did. And I totally knew that. I totally knew that. Um, and, and, but my response was interesting because I was holding on to that 10% of the mistakes that I had made. And I said, um, but there were some things I should have caught that I didn't. Now that was, just seems like a sort of a normal, honest statement. But what happened was very curious because Swami was... Many of you don't know Swami, but those who do, uh, there's a presence of God around him. And this day, there was a very, very strong presence of God around him. And I mean, as he was standing there, it was just very strong. And I could, and he didn't, as I said what I said, he didn't change a thing about himself. He just looked at me. And my words bounced off of him and bounced back at me. And I could see that they were negative that I had closed off the valve. I had closed off the flow. I hadn't lied. I'd said what was true, but on the other hand, there was this negative down-pulling energy behind it. And so this is a message of a sort of a life work to, to allow ourselves to really be in this full flow of goodness and not hang on to these little negative things, okay? So letting go of self-definitions, especially, as I say, for most of us in this room, negative ones. The next one is contentment. Um, Patanjali tells us that if we will practice contentment, if we will say what comes of itself, let it come, I am happy in my inner self, if we will practice that all the time, we will discover the bliss at the heart of every atom of creation, at the heart of every atom beyond creation. It just, it, we will open ourselves to that because we will be in the moment trusting that that's what's happening with God. I, I want to share a story that I just recently read in the Clarity magazine online um, that one of our ministers, Asha, from Palo Alto wrote. And she told a story, again, of Swami and her that I have thought of a number of times when I hear it in my, in my own uh, thinking. She went to talk to Swami because she was facing something that was very, very difficult in her life. And she was kind of, she was upset. I don't know if she was crying, but she was very, very upset. And she was talking about how good her life was, but they had this huge test and it was just making things so hard for her and so on and so on and so on. And she said, as she talked... Swami just looked at her. This is a very similar story, actually. He just looked at her. No criticism, no sympathy. He just looked at her. That's all. And so when she finished speaking, he continued to look at her. He did not say a word. He just looked at her. And so her words, very similar to what happened to me, her words were hanging in the air there. And she could see that what she was saying was, the spiritual path would be so easy if it weren't so hard. 
Now, how many times have you said that in a different way inside yourself? You're going, oh, this is so hard. Why is this so hard? Because you're trying to become perfect. How, how easy do you want it to be? So anyway, just this sense of how can we find this place where we know that what is coming to us has come from the wisdom and love that is going to free us. That that's what it's for. It's not coming to punish us. It's coming to help us take the next step toward freedom. That's all that God's about for us. And the last thing is, of course, meditation. And meditation is our chance to practice getting to that place where the valve is neither close to the left or close to the right, but getting to that place where the pendulum stops swinging and it's still. And for just a few moments or more than a few moments, we're able to experience our connection with that power within us. And it's that practice that's going to allow us to do the other practices, the contentment, the clarifying our mind, the not getting caught by negativity, not getting caught by overconfidence, but just to be in that place where we connect with God. Swami Kriyananda said that when he, at some point in his sadhana, very early on, I think, He had learned the techniques of Kriya Yoga, and he said he really hated practicing Kriya Yoga for about a year and a half. He said, I don't know why. Maybe I was afraid of the deep peace that came from it, but it was really difficult for me. And he said, and this is important, he said, but I had no other choice. Because these are the techniques that Master gave me to help free me, to help me find God. So what am I going to do if I don't do what he gave me to do as much as I don't like it? So that is a really, really good message for us on every level. Um, when, When the guru comes and says, okay, you've asked me to help to free you, here's what you need to do, we kind of can't say, but I don't like it. I'm not very good at it. You know, do I have to do this? I'm so bad at it. We have to do it because in the process, as happened for Swami, after a year and a half, things shifted. He discovered, of course, through Kriya was the greatest transforming power of his life, but he would not have found it if he didn't do it. It wouldn't work to say, okay, well, I I don't like it now, but maybe I'll try again in a couple of years and see if I like it then. We've got to push through those places that are not enjoyable because that is the way out we've been given. And I want to share um, some words that Swami said about meditation, which uh, these are actually, um, actually shorten these, so these are not his exact words, but this is his thought. The spiritual path is not about the experiences we receive in meditation, but about the refinement and purity of our self-offering to God. Spiritual path is not about the experiences we receive in meditation, but about the refinement and purity of our self-offering to God. The more we think about how we can get more realization, the more we fall into delusion. Instead, it has to be constant giving. In that giving, God can give us more. To eliminate the strain and tension of trying to concentrate, release the thought, I am meditating. 
Think rather, the cosmic vibration is reaffirming, through me, its own reality. Cosmic love, through me, is yearning for God's love. Cosmic joy, through me, is rejoicing in our infinite beloved. So, with this continual practice of meditation and getting ourselves stronger at being able to choose that wide, open, clear connection with God, we begin to discover for ourselves the path back to where we belong, to our true nature. I would like to end with a story that I just find very, very inspiring. And in a way, it kind of pulls together some of these thoughts. Um, It's a story that Ramakrishna told about a man, a saint, who came to his ashram. Ramakrishna was a saint who lived in the 19th century um, near Calcutta, India. And this saint came to his ashram, and this saint carried with him a holy book. And this book was so holy that he would do puja to this book, and then he would spend hours each day, and he would be studying the book with intense concentration and so much devotion. And finally, Ramakrishna just begged him. He said, please, please let me see what's in your book. Please let me see it. And he opened the book, and on every page of the book were written two words, Om Ram. Om is the name for God as the creative vibration. Ram is the name for God as the guru, as the one who will take you to God. And so basically, all the book said was God. And the saint said, this is all I need. This is all I need. This is what will take me to freedom. Freedom.